Accidental death in last week's St. Clair Avenue fatality. Miss Laura Chase, 25, was traveling west on the afternoon of May 18th when her car swerved through the barriers protecting a repair site on the bridge and crashed into the ravine below, catching fire. Miss Chase was killed instantly. Her sister, Mrs. Richard E. Griffin, wife of the prominent manufacturer, gave evidence that Miss Chase suffered from severe headaches affecting her vision. In reply to questioning, she denied any possibility of intoxication, as Miss Chase did not drink. From the Blind Assassin by Laura Chase Rheingold, James and Moreau, New York, 1947 She has a single photograph of him. She tucked it into a brown envelope on which she'd written clippings and hid the envelope between the pages of Perennials for the Rock Garden, where no one else would ever look. It's almost all she has left of him. It's black and white, the photo, and is of the two of them together, her and this man, on a picnic. Picnic is written on the back in pencil. Not his name or hers, just picnic. She knows the names. She doesn't need to write them down. The man is wearing a light-colored hat, angled down on his head and partially shading his face. She's turned half towards him and smiling in a way she can't remember smiling at anyone since. She seems very young in the picture, too young, though she hadn't considered herself too young at the time. He's smiling, too, but he's holding up his hand as if to fend her off in play, or else to protect himself from the camera, from the person who must be there taking the picture. Over to one side there's a hand, cut by the margin, scissored off at the wrist, resting on the grass as if discarded, left to its own devices. The trace of blown cloud in the brilliant sky, like ice cream smudged on chrome. His smoke-stained fingers, the distant glint of water, all drowned now. Drowned, but shining. What will it be, he says. Dinner jackets and romance, or shipwrecks on a barren coast? You can have your pick. Jungles, tropical islands, mountains, or another dimension of space. That's what I'm best at. Anything you like can happen there. Spaceships and skin-tight uniforms, ray guns, Martians with the bodies of giant squids, that sort of thing. How about a desert? I've always wanted to visit one, with an oasis, of course. Some date palms might be nice. She's tearing the crust off her sandwich. She doesn't like the crusts. Not much scope with deserts, not many features, unless you add some tombs. Then you could have a pack of nude women who've been dead for three thousand years, with lithe, curvaceous figures, ruby-red lips, azure hair, and eyes like snake-filled pits. But lurid isn't your style. They're for the huddled masses. Popular on the covers, though. They'll writhe all over a fellow. They have to be beaten off with rifle butts. Could I have another dimension of space and also the tombs and the dead women, please? That's a tall order, but I'll see what I can do. Cigarette? She shakes her head for no. He lights his own, striking the match on his thumbnail. She looks at his rolled-up shirt sleeve, white or a pale blue, then his wrist, the browner skin of his hand. There are other people around, other picnickers in their pale summer clothing. It's all very proper. 
Nevertheless, she feels that the two of them are alone, as if they're invisible. Space it is, then, he says, with tombs and virgins and wolves, but on the installment plan. Agreed? <laughs> the installment plan? She laughs. No, I'm serious. You can't skimp. It might take days. We'll have to meet again. She hesitates. All right, she says. If I can arrange it. Good, he says. He keeps his voice casual. Too much urgency might put her off. On the planet of... Let's see. On the planet Zykron, located in another dimension of space, there's a rubble-strewn plain. To the north is the ocean, which is violet in color. To the west is a range of mountains said to be roamed after sunset by the voracious undead female inhabitants of the crumbling tombs located there. To the south is a burning waste of sand, and to the east are several steep valleys that might once have been rivers. In the middle of the plain is a large mound of stones. The land around is arid, with a few scrubby bushes, not exactly a desert, but close enough. Is there a cheese sandwich left? No, she says, but there's a hard-boiled egg. She's never been this happy before. Here's the salt for it. Thanks. You remembered everything. This arid plain isn't claimed by anyone, he continues. Or rather, it's claimed by five different tribes, none strong enough to annihilate the others. All of them wander past this stone heap from time to time, herding their folks, blue sheep-like creatures with vicious tempers, and the pile of stones is called in their various languages the haunt of flying snakes, the heap of rubble, the abode of howling mothers, the door of oblivion, and the pit of gnawed bones. Each tribe tells a similar story about it. Underneath the rocks, they say, a king is buried. Not only the king, but the remains of the magnificent city this king once ruled. The city was destroyed in a battle, and the king was hanged from a date palm as a sign of triumph. At moonrise he was cut down and buried, and the stones were piled up to mark the spot. The other inhabitants of the city were all killed, butchered, men, women, children, babies, even the animals. No living thing was spared. That's horrible. Stick a shovel into the ground almost anywhere and some horrible thing or other will come to light. Good for the trade. We thrive on bones. Without them, there'd be no stories. Any more lemonade? No, she says. We've drunk it all up. Go on. The real name of the city was erased from memory by the conquerors, and this is why the place is now known only by the name of its own destruction. The pile of stones thus marks both an act of deliberate remembrance and an act of deliberate forgetting. Each of the five tribes claims to have been the victorious attacker. Each recalls the slaughter with relish. Each believes it was ordained by their own god as righteous vengeance because of the unholy practices carried on in the city. Evil must be cleansed with blood, they say. On that day, the blood ran like water, so afterwards it must have been very clean. 
Every herdsman or merchant who passes adds a stone to the heap in remembrance of the dead, your own dead. But since no one knows who the dead under the pile of stones really were, they all leave their stones on the off chance. The leaves of the apple tree rustle. She looks up at the sky, then at her watch. I'm late. She leans forward, moving to stand up. If I'm overdue, they'll want to know where I've been. She smooths her skirt down, turns away, the small green apples watching her like eyes. The Globe and Mail, June 4, 1947 After an unexplained absence of several days, the body of industrialist Richard E. Griffin, 47, said to have been favored for the progressive conservative candidacy in the Toronto riding of St. David's, was discovered near his summer residence of Avilion in Port Ticonderoga, where he was vacationing. Mr. Griffin was found in his sailboat, the Water Nixie, which was tied up at his private jetty on the Jogs River. He had apparently suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. Mr. Griffin had a distinguished career as the head of a commercial empire that embraced many areas, including textiles, garments, and light manufacturing, and was commended for his efforts in supplying Allied troops with uniform parts and weapons components during the war. He was a well-known figure at the Royal Canadian Yacht Club. Mr. Griffin was the brother-in-law of the late Laura Chase, who made her posthumous debut as a novelist this spring, and is survived by his sister, Mrs. Winifred Griffin Pryor, the noted socialite, and by his wife, Mrs. Iris Chase Griffin, as well as by his ten-year-old daughter, Amy. The funeral will be held in Toronto on Wednesday. From the Blind Assassin by Laura Chase The Park...